I'm Lynn Edwards, and I'm an alcoholic. Amen. Jerry, thank you for the invitation, and uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, I am going to take my phone out and set it up here on the podium uh, so that I can keep track of time because uh, as hospitable as everybody's been and as gracious as everybody's been, I don't want to take this on too long and uh, have you guys turn on me or anything like that. So, um, my sobriety date is July 26, 2018. Uh, my home group is the primary purpose group. We meet in Southern Pines at the First Baptist Church. We meet on Monday nights and Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. Uh, we have an open speaker meeting on Thursday nights, and on Monday nights what we do is uh, we have three different meetings. Uh, we have a big book discussion, we have a discussion topic, and then we also have a newcomers meeting. So if you're ever in the area uh, on Monday or Thursday night, uh, please come and join us. We'd love to have you. Um, I've been asked tonight to, uh, to tell my story, um, what I was like, what happened, and, and what I'm like now. Um, I also have a sponsor, and, uh, and because of, of being able to go through the steps, uh, and, and be honest about myself and, and who I am and what I am, uh, I am I am also able to sponsor other men. Um, very grateful uh, for Steve for, for coming up with me tonight, uh, making the ride with me. It, uh, it was nice to have the company, uh, and it was nice to be behind the wheel for the first time uh, in, a, in a long time. Um, even though my sobriety dates July 26, 2018, uh, my entire sobriety... Uh, I, I have been without a license until uh, until recently, until last month, uh, and, and the freedom that I've been given with that license being restored to me uh, is been has been wonderful, uh, and it's been a gift from God, and it's been a gift because of the program Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I'll just get into it, uh, tell you a little bit about, uh, I, I guess with this, uh, start from the beginning. Uh, so uh, I was born. Uh, <coughs> Uh, I was born in SOB, son of a builder. Um, my, my parents, uh, from the time I was six years old uh, till, uh, till 2018, my parents owned their own residential construction company. Uh, so I'd been around construction quite a bit uh, my entire life. Um, early childhood, you know, to the best of my recollection, was, was always wonderful. I had two loving, wonderful parents. Uh, that, that I appreciated and that I loved and that were always super supportive. Uh, so, you know, my alcoholism definitely didn't come from, from any tragedies during my childhood. Uh, I did have a grandmother that was an alcoholic. Um, and Georgia was a wonderful, wonderful woman, and I loved her to death, and she had, uh, she had many wonderful qualities, but at the same time, she also uh, suffered from, from, uh, from this disease. Uh, and I'm not about to saddle her or her memory uh, and, and blame my alcoholism on, on her. That, uh, that wouldn't be fair. Um, I had, like I say, a wonderful, wonderful childhood. Uh, grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Moved, well, was born in Raleigh and actually moved to Fayetteville when I was four years old. And uh, I, in my teenage years, I was a product of, of the mid to late 80s in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And, and that was... That really wasn't a bad deal. Uh, Fable, Fable was kind of fun uh, during, those, during those days, uh, especially Hay Street area and that. And I, I, uh, I, I always liked to be the guy that, that everybody thought was ready to have the slice of the apple pie and, and you know, just an all-American boy type of deal. 
Um, but I sure did enjoy some of those Friday and Saturday nights out on Hay Street and, and seeing what kind of trouble I could get into um, without getting caught. Um, but back it up a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I, I have come to realize more recently is that uh, when I was in second grade, I was diagnosed with dyslexia. And I didn't think that that was a big deal or, or anything as far as uh, um, maybe it being part of, of my story uh, until I realized that, that that was probably, there was some real fear and anxiety that was brought about uh, because of that. Uh, and, and part of what I, I've come to realize too is that what it started looking like for me uh, at a very early age is um, what people might think, uh, especially when I was trying to read something, if I would stumble with words or anything like that. So what I would do is, is I would try and practice a bunch before, try and figure out in school where I was going to be asked to read at and try and read ahead. Uh, and then the other thing that I do is I, I, would, I, I guess with dyslexia, maybe God also blesses you with some gifts. And, and one of the gifts seemed to be a, a very good memory. So I, w I would start to memorize things quite a bit. Uh, and I, I just I remember it being a little bit awkward, uh, but I had some wonderful teachers that really worked hard with me. Uh, and, and the dyslexia, though, it's, it's kind of like alcoholism. You never get rid of it, but you learn, you know, you, you learn much like with life. You learn how to manage it. Uh, so it, it, was, it was something that became very manageable. It wasn't any kind of a hindrance, and it didn't hold me back. But there was some fear and anxiety from it. Um, as I was growing up and stuff, one of the things that I fell in love with was sports. Uh, they were kind of easy. It, it was different. I, you know, it wasn't like when I was reading and things like that. Sports were something that I could watch somebody that was capable and competent. I could watch them do it, and I could kind of emulate it. And it was something that was easy. It was something that I didn't have to think about a lot. I didn't have to worry about. Uh, it just came very naturally. Uh, so I was on a lot of teams, and I played a lot of sports and, and a lot of ball fields, a lot of gymnasiums and things like that. Um, and and it, it brought about a sense of self-worth. And, and it was something that... Um, it, it was something that I really appreciated because of the fact that it... Um, it, it kind of gave me a purpose and allowed me to not feel lost sometimes. Um, and and, and that, that was important for a long time. And, and as I got older, um, and, and so many different things happened in life, what, what I started finding out was um, that the sports would take less and less of a meaning. And, and when drinking started to get involved, it would start taking more and more of a meaning for me. Uh, my, my first drink was 16 years old. I was kind of late compared to a lot of people. Um, I hear some stories about 11-year-olds and 9-year-olds and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, that's, you know. Um, and, and I guess part of the reason why I started so late is, is because of all the athletics and that. And I, thought, I always thought I was a very disciplined, motivated guy. Uh, turns out, uh, when I got to college, I found out that it was my dad that was more disciplined and motivated, <laughs> and that he was always keeping me on the straight and narrow. Um, because my athletic career and a lot of other things changed once I got to college. But I was 16 years old the first time I ever got drunk. Uh, it was after a football game, and we had uh, we had a party to celebrate a victory, and uh, I, it, we just I remember I had a six pack of Miller Genuine Draft with the black label and that. 
and it, it was kind of it was kind of over in the in the left side of the fridge, kind of in the back and all that. And I was the only one drinking it. So if anybody was trying to take one of my beer, I guess maybe that was early <laughs> early ideas of maybe an alcoholic mind in that because I was worried about whether or not somebody was going to take one of my beers. Um, but I, I do remember that night. Um, that, you know, I, I, it's not like I got instantly drunk, and it, you know there was a feeling of euphoria. But I I do. I can definitely identify with that, that ease and comfort that, that the beer brought about, that the alcohol brought about. Uh, and everything just seemed to kind of calm down a little bit. My mind always was going 100 miles an hour because maybe earlier on from the dyslexia or that, my identity was, was brought about by what you thought, what your expectations were, and, and what I needed to be to meet those expectations. So my mind was always going 120 miles an hour. I was trying to figure out what you needed me to be, and I wanted to be that. Um, and and I uh, and that's tough sometimes. That is that's a tough way to live. And when I was 16 years old, um, that alcohol allowed me just to relax, and I didn't think as much, and everything kind of calmed down, and my brain didn't go as fast, and and I got into a point where. All that really mattered was me and, and the comfortability that alcohol brought me. Um, and so pretty much the rest of my high school time, I, I, was, I was a guy that, you know, since I played on a lot of ball teams, um, I didn't have a lot of time for drinking. Uh, I tried to become a weekend warrior the best I could anytime I could. Uh, we would have some parties, and, and when drinking was available to me, I, I enjoyed it. And, and we had fun with it. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be able to, to go to college. And when I went to college, uh, I, I, like most people, man, I had all these big expectations. I had all this, the, these ideas of grandeur that, that I was going to, you know, my jersey was going to be in the rafters. I was going to be top of the class. I was going to go to law school. After law school, I was going to be get into politics and become president and everything like that. I, and, and that's where I really started to realize I was a great starter, uh, but I struggled to the finish most of the time. Um, my freshman year, I played athletics for four years at a university, and I was better my first year than I was my fourth. And, and, and I think that that kind of explains the fact that, that the athletics and school and, and the education and the idea of, of law school and all that kind of stuff, it started to take a backseat. Other things became more important, and one of those things was drinking. Um, all the discipline that I had that, that I, you know, from, from the hard working and all that, somewhere between freshman and sophomore year, that really started to ease up. Instead of having a key to the gymnasium and, and going in after closing and unlocking it and shooting basketballs for two or three hours, I started finding out where all the keg parties were, started finding out what, what college was all about. And, uh, and every time I would drink, it would seem as though I would drink until I was drunk. Uh, there wasn't an off switch. And... I was in college, so I didn't think that I was any different than anybody else. I thought my drinking was probably normal because everybody I was around, they were drinking, having a good time, and getting drunk. Um, 
but a lot of times around midnight, one o'clock, everybody was kind of putting the brakes on it, calling the time out, and I was ready to go until dawn. Um, and usually my drinking didn't stop until I finally had passed out. Uh, and and that's, how, that's how college looked for quite a while. Uh, somehow, someway, I was fortunate enough to graduate from college. Uh, and like I say, at the end of those four years, I, um, I, I, I didn't meet all of the expectations and goals I had set for myself. Uh, and, and one of the things that I also found out was that I could start becoming a little bit of a victim. Uh, and, and that victim role and mentality that, that would really help to propel my alcoholism later in life, uh, it, it started showing itself even in college. Because uh, in, instead of saying I was a failure and that I'd washed out athletically, uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough to have a major knee injury, an ACL-MCL tear. Uh, part of the way into my senior year. So, you know, I had always hung my hat on, well, if I wouldn't have had that injury, then, uh, you know, things would have turned out different for me with that. Uh, I would have been able to end my career the way I had thought that it should have been. Uh, the reality of it is, is that I wasn't half the ball player my beginning of my senior year that I was as a freshman. Uh, and a lot of that's because it, it turns out I wasn't as athletic as I thought I was. It turns out that I had practiced a whole lot. And when you're mediocre and you don't practice, uh, you regress. And that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, but when I, when I left college, uh, I had a lot of opportunities. Um, well, when I left college, uh, I, ha I had the opportunity to, uh, to coach. Uh, and, and so I worked on that for a year uh, at Campbell University as a graduate assistant coach. Uh, and after a year, some of that, that, that we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous, that irritable, restless, and discontented, that was starting to happen. What it, what it looked like for me uh, that graduate year was, you know, I, I work really hard, I travel a lot, I see a lot of ball players, uh, I, I do a lot of scouting and things like that, and, and, you know, I ought to get paid for that. You know, getting a free education just isn't enough. I, I, I need to get paid. Uh, I didn't come from a great coaching tree, so therefore a lot of opportunities to be an assistant coach at a major program didn't come about. Uh, I got a chance to uh, be an assistant coach, paid position, uh, at a junior college in South Carolina. It was called USC Salkahatchee, and it was in Walterboro, South Carolina. And um, out of college, assistant coach, Walterboro, South Carolina, and I'm going to be the next Coach K, Dean Smith, all these guys. You know. I had, a, once again, all these delusions of grandeur. Uh, and that first year as an assistant coach, I, between coaching, teaching three classes, working part-time uh, at a sporting goods store, and on Wednesday nights uh, bartending at the Elks Lodge, uh, I made sixteen thousand uh, dollars, and after a year of that, uh, hey, I, I, I was ready to get out of coaching. Uh, I was ready to start making some real money, uh, and and the opportunity came about, you know. And 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 and, and my drinking was progressing during this time too, uh, and and then the next thing that happened is uh, is I got an opportunity to have just one job. Uh, a guy, a guy from uh, Waffle House came along and he said, uh, you, you, "You, know, you're you're pretty, you're pretty good at this coaching thing, uh, and I think I think you've got some leadership qualities. So we'd like to hire you as a manager." And uh, I was like, "Man, I don't know, I don't know anything about food. I don't know anything about 
cooking breakfast or anything like that. <laughs> Waffle House, what's, you know. And he said, we can teach you all those things. He said, but, but you have, the, and of course my ego needed to hear that, but you have qualities that, that you, we can't teach. You're, you're a natural leader. So I was like, oh, man, this is great. Okay. And when he told me what my starting salary was going to be as a trainee, it was more than what I had been making working three jobs. So I was like, yeah, I'm on board with this. Let's try it. Um, but, of course, many of you know, uh, because you're in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I'm going to assume that I'm correct in saying this. A lot of you have probably been to a Waffle House late at night. <laughs> late, late at night. Uh, it's open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Never closes. They don't have locks on the front door. Uh, and, and what I found out as I, as I was trying to move up the ladder uh, in, in, that, in that profession was that uh, there's, there's a lot of pressure that comes along with it. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of where your income comes from is making goals, hitting goals, hitting, hitting different targets and bonus structures and things like that. Uh, and then going from one store to multiple stores to eventually 24 over a seven-year career, and uh, once again, I was a great starter and a terrible finisher. By the time I got to seven years in, into my career with Waffle House, um, I had 24 stores, and it looked on the outside like I was doing great. Uh, and, and life, and life as a multi-store manager was eating me alive, and I didn't have a solution. Uh, and then I found alcohol again. And uh, my drinking, instead of it just being recreational and on the weekends and, and fun around friends, uh, started taking on a different meaning. It started taking on the, I need to relax. I've got to slow down. I need a drink. Uh, I deserve a drink. Um, I, I rationalized it in so many different ways. Um, and, and I, I was at 12 stores in North Carolina, and, and that irritable, restless, and discontented was coming back in again. And, and I thought that I had, I had, I had been passed over for, for a promotion that I thought I should have gotten. I actually lost out a promotion to a guy that I had trained. But he was older, and he had a wife, and he had kids, and I was like, well, that's the reason. Uh, it, it wasn't because a lot of the guys in Waffle House could see that, that – uh, Though my numbers were great, that, that I was probably a ticking time bomb. Um, people could smell some things. Uh, they could, they, you know, I, I would come in when, when something would go wrong and they would call me in to one of my stores and that, I'd probably come in a little disheveled and uh, not, not, quite, not quite on par. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and yet, it, in my mind, I had everybody fooled. You know, I was, everything was great. Uh, but you, you start hearing those little whispers. And, uh, and, and then the, you know, because of those little whispers, I was like, ah, oh, man, time might be running out here. I should have gotten that promotion. I didn't get it. Uh, and, and I was given an opportunity to go to Arkansas. And uh, it, it was where uh, it was a franchise that corporate was reacquiring. And it was a chance to go out and, and to the wild, wild west and show all those people in Arkansas how Waffle House was supposed to be managed and how you were supposed to do things. So I, I went, out there, um, went out there and got that promotion and got to 24 restaurants. And, uh, boy, you couldn't tell me anything. 
I, I thought I, I thought I knew everything. Uh, and, and once again, all the frustrations that would come along with people not doing what, I, what my expectation was. Uh, and, and the drinking just continued. Uh, it, it continued to ramp up. It became more frequent. Uh, and it became my solution. And, and it, it, it was a solution that never had a positive, lasting effect. Uh, it always, it always, it didn't seem to have consequences, and yet, and yet there was always a guilt there, and there was always remorse there the next day. Um, and it started to become something that I, I thought I could control, and yet every time I told myself that I was going to do something a little bit differently the next day, uh, it, it, it would end up being back that way. And uh, one of the nice things, though, uh, while I was in Arkansas, the three years that I was in Arkansas, I used to joke with people and tell them that I, I went I-40 West, got off on an exit in Arkansas, and it took me three years to find my way out. Um, but I, I met the uh, love of my life. I uh, met the woman that I would marry. Uh, by all accounts, everyone seems to think that she's a very intelligent woman, but obviously she's capable of some bad decisions. Uh, <laughs> You know that one of the one of the things that I used to refer to is that uh, when I met her, I definitely outkicked my coverage. Um, I, I believe uh, there's an AA song that's out where where he talks about uh, I married up and she married way way down, and uh, that was kind of that that was kind of the way it was. Um, and we were madly in love with each other, and uh, we we started our life, and very early on, uh, she became troubled about my drinking. Now, she would, she would drink and party and have a good time with me, uh, but it was weird. She, she always could turn it off. She could stop. And, and I always, you know, it, it, as, as we started spending more and more time together and as we were married a little bit longer and a little bit longer, um, you know, I, I used to always tell her, you grew up, and I, I'm a kid at heart. You know, and it, it should be okay for me to drink the way I drink, and, and I shouldn't have consequences from you, and you shouldn't judge me. Uh, it, it seemed like she, as she got older, she was getting more uptight. And, uh, and, and she just wasn't nearly as much fun as she was uh, earlier on. Um, but she, she had also called my parents and, uh, and told them that, that she thought that I might drink too much. And that conversation didn't go very well either. Um, but then, you know, part of, my, part of my excuse was, well, if we were back home in North Carolina, it'd probably be different for me. I'm homesick. I miss my family. I'm, I miss North Carolina. I'm out here in Arkansas. Uh, I don't fit in, don't belong. And uh, if I was just back home, it would be better. Um, I wouldn't drink the way I drank. So she called my bluff. She said, well, let's move back home. Let's go to North Carolina. That's where you're from. Let's go back there. Your dad's got this company, and he's offered you a position, vice president. There's only three employees, my dad, my mom, and me. Because <laughs> as a general contractor for residential, most of the, most of the work is done by subcontractors. Um, so... Uh, I was offered the job to come back home uh, and be part of, uh, part of the family business uh, with the idea that eventually I'd take it over. Um, and when we got back here, I thought that everything was going to be great. 
Um, and man, I just couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I would slow down. I would change it up. Um, when, when my wife would, would get on to me about my drinking, I would show her, I'd stop for 30 days uh, to prove I wasn't an alcoholic because an alcoholic can't not drink for 30 days. I mean, it's just not possible. At least that's what my mind told me. And the amazing thing is, is that every time after the 30-day period, two-week period, however long it was, uh, it was as though I had to make up for all the alcohol that I had deprived myself of for 30 days. <laughs> and I would go on these major, like, four-day just benders. Um, then what we determined was uh, that I need more responsibility in my life. So in 2003, we got pregnant and uh, had, a, had a child, had a little girl. She was the most wonderful, beautiful thing that I had ever seen in my life. She was my heart. She was my pride, my joy. I looked at her for the first time, and I couldn't help but just tears of joy. I was a father, and I, I had this beautiful, beautiful gift. Um, my mother-in-law from Arkansas was in, and she stayed that night at the hospital with my wife, and she said, you need to go home, get some rest. This has been a big emotional day. And uh, I'll stay here. I'll, I'll, watch over, I'll watch over Jill. I'll watch over Megan. I thought that was great. And when I got home, I decided I was, I was going to, to go out onto the hammock in the backyard, and I was going to have a beer. I was going to celebrate and relax just a minute. Enjoy the greatest day of my life. And... Uh, Next thing I know, I'm as drunk as I could be. What should have been a day for me to remember my entire life that gave me so much joy uh, turned into just another night filled with booze. The next day I went into uh, the little local diner, met my dad. We always had breakfast every morning there during the week uh, before work. And he took one look at me. He said, good God, you smell like a damn distillery. What is going on with you? You've got responsibilities. You've got a family. You've got a wife to take care of and a daughter to raise. I was like, man, Dad, you, you're overreacting. It's not that bad. It's just a few drinks. See, and that, that was the lie I became very, very good at. That was the manipulation I became very good at, was just a few drinks. Uh, I did a lot of pre-gaming. I would drink before I got around people. You know, a lot of people were like, man, I don't understand how he can get that drunk. He's a lightweight. He gets drunk on two beers. Um, the, tr the, the truth of it was I'd had a whole lot prior to. Um, and... and uh, and, and I had lost control of my marriage because what ended up happening was all the lies, all the manipulation, all the, all the hiding, the hiding of bottles in the garage, uh, running out to get my golf clubs ready to go play golf the next day on a Friday night, <laughs> and, and all the drinks and everything like that. Uh, I had lost control of the relationship because I was constantly having to apologize. I was constantly having to, 
she acquiesced to, to the fact that uh, I wasn't as smart of a drunk as I thought I was, and I was getting caught any and every time uh, because she was a lot smarter than I was. Uh, and, and when my daughter was nine years old, my wife came to me and she said, you know, I think we need a separation because uh, this drinking's gotten out of control and uh, you, don't, you obviously don't know what to value and appreciate in your life. So we need, we need to separate for a bit. And uh, my alcoholic brain told me that was the greatest thing that could happen. <laughs> I would get a chance to have a couple, two or three months to drink the way I wanted to drink. Uh, she would realize that she couldn't live life without me. <laughs> and I was going to gain control of the relationship again. She was going to beg me to come back, and I was going to gain control of the relationship. Uh, after three months, we went out to dinner at a pretty nice place in Southern Pines, uh, candlelit and all that kind of stuff, and she said, you know, th these three months have taught me something. And I said, oh, yeah. Here it comes. I'm going to get that apology. And... Uh, and, and here I'm going to take control of the relationship back because she's, she's, she's come to the realization she can't live without me. And uh, she looked over and she said, uh, I, I realized that life would be better if we were divorced. And that was a game changer for me. Uh, for as much as I had drank up to that point, and she had tried everything, um, introduced me to, Alcoholics Anonymous, to, a, to a gentleman in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who would later become my sponsor. Um, but at the time, I didn't, I didn't want to hear anything about it. I didn't believe it. I wasn't, I wasn't that bad. Everybody was just so uptight. Uh, but it really became a game changer when she told me she wanted a divorce because then that whole victim role was able to come back in. Uh, and, and for the next six years of my life, from 2012 to 2018, I spun completely out of control. Um, I needed that numbing agent that alcohol provided. And I allowed myself to get numb every opportunity I could. And, uh, and what it really started looking like at that point is a lot of consequences started coming into my life. Uh, I, I was after the big crash of 2008 uh, in the market. Uh, I had started working for the Department of Defense and, and had latched onto a really nice gig with them. Um, and, it, and it turns out that uh, when you get three DUIs, the Department of Defense isn't interested in employing you anymore. Uh, and, and in 2016, uh, March of 2016, I got my first DUI. June of 2017, I got my second one. And in June of 2018, I got my third one. Um, now, before the conviction actually took place, uh, I was able to finagle my way on and off all the military bases. Uh, I had my passport with me since they had, I had to surrender my license. Uh, and I would drive illegally every day of my life. Um, and I continued work knowing that one day it was all going to catch up to me and I was, I was going to get fired. Uh, and, and, and the drinking, of course, so that, so that I could rationalize and, and just calm myself for the day, I, I would, I would, I would wake up in the morning and drink. You know, I, I had that, I was, I was resolute every day that I wasn't going to drink tomorrow like I did today. Uh, and, and what it really started looking like in the very end for me was waking up in the morning and whatever was on the nightstand I would drink 
and then I would go to the fridge on the way to the shower and grab a beer, and I would drink a beer while I showered. Uh, I would get dressed for work, and before I'd walk out the door, I'd grab another beer to, to just calm myself and to feel normal. And uh, in about 12 o'clock, 11, 12 o'clock, uh, I would start, yeah, I wasn't going to drink. It uh, wasn't going to be until after 5 o'clock, and I would control my drinking and how much I was going to drink. At about 12, 1 o'clock, somewhere between 11 and 1, uh, most every day I'd go off base, uh, go to the ABC store, and, uh, and, and grab a fifth. And, uh, yeah, I'd take a good two- or three-second pull, do that a couple, two or three times, sitting in the parking lot, and just take a deep breath and exhale. And, uh, and I remember one time thinking, you know, and you got to start watching this because if you're not careful, this could become a problem. <laughs> That's how delusional I had gotten. I, I, I thought at, uh, you know, let's face it. Most people don't sit in the parking lot of an ABC store in the middle of the day drinking and then drive back on to, at that time, the third largest military base in the world. Um, but eventually it all caught up with me, that third DUI. Uh, my, my drinking had gone from, from reckless to dangerous uh, because I was coming back from Bedford, Virginia, coming through Greensboro, and um, I have about 45 minutes that I have absolutely no recollection of. When I, when I came out of the backside of Greensboro, I was on my way down 220. I was going to take a left into Cander and go 211 into Pinehurst where I lived, and somehow I, uh, I got a DUI in, in uh, Mount Gilead. And Mount Gilead's in Montgomery County, and Pinehurst is way over here in Moore County, polar opposite places. Uh, had never been to Mount Gilead before that. Had no idea. Um, and, and, and I didn't even get caught driving drunk. I pulled into, and for, I don't know why, but for some reason I thought it was a mom and top pop tax service, but I pull into this driveway, and I'm like, I can't get another DUI. I, I, I got to just chill, and I got to get sober up, and then I'll drive home, and uh, turns out, no matter how nice the car, and no matter how presentable you think you look, <laughs> if you're in somebody else's driveway for like 45 minutes, they're going to call the cops, and they did. And uh, the fact that I didn't have the car on and that technically I wasn't driving didn't seem to matter to the state trooper <laughs> or the local cops. And uh, I got my third DUI. And, uh, and that was really, though, it was kind of a game changer because what I did was after I, after I got that DUI and uh, came, came back home, uh, I immediately moved in with my parents because I needed help. And that was the only safe place that I could be. And, uh, and my lawyer... Uh, told me that I probably needed to go to treatment, uh, not necessarily because he thought it would, would help, but he thought that it would be able to reduce my sentence because he said after three DUIs, you're going to do some jail time. And, uh, and I'm sitting there trying to figure what that looked like. Uh, and that was in June of 2018, and like I told you, my sobriety date is July 26th. Uh, so I went about a month after that thinking I could control it, thinking I could stop, thinking I would have a solution. And I didn't. Um, and, and what I did was uh, right around that time, I called my ex-wife. 
And I said, uh, that, that guy from Alcoholics Anonymous, I said, do you still have his number? I said, I need to give him a call. She said, why would you want to call him? I said, because I'm an alcoholic and I've got a problem. She said, thank God. <laughs> she said, I'm texting you the number, and you need to promise me you'll give him a call. And I did. Like eight years after I had had lunch with him, I called him up. He invited me to a meeting at the primary purpose group. Uh, and then what that looked like is I, I, I sat down with another gentleman uh, who would be my first sponsor, and uh, we, we, started, uh, we started developing a relationship and going through the book some. A month later, I went to uh, treatment for 28 days. And uh, I went in there. I went in there for all the wrong reasons, guys. I went in there to, to my hair was on fire, and I'm not the kind of guy that does well in jail. Uh, so I didn't want to go to jail, didn't want to go to prison. Um, so I, I was looking for any means possible to, to stay out of that situation. And uh, they said treatment was the way to go, and that's what I did. Luckily enough, I was, I was finally willing enough to listen to the message that was presented from the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and after those 28 days and after those tools being laid at my feet, uh, when I got back home to my home group, uh, I was able to commit myself to working the steps. Uh, and it has been nothing short of a miracle in my life. Um, I have been given so many wonderful things from those steps uh, and, and the relationship that, that I've been able to develop with the God of my understanding. Um, you know, I had I'd heard, I'd heard someone say, and I, I, I firmly believe this, is that uh, God brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and Alcoholics Anonymous showed me how I have a relationship with God. Um, and, and through working those steps, I was able to find some freedom. And uh, through having that home group, not only did I have uh, people that loved me when I wasn't capable of loving myself, but they, they, they rallied around me, they supported me, <coughs> and they helped me, and they taught me. And, uh, and my sponsor was there for me. And when my sponsor wasn't able to be there for me, uh, and, and when I was looking to get more involved, because one of those things that the, that, that home group did was, was they loved me and cared for me, but they also held me accountable, and, and they, asked for me, they asked for me to have some responsibilities in that home group. Uh, and when I wanted to start expanding out after working those steps uh, to, to secure that freedom that I had found in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I realized that, that the next step was, was for me to find a sponsor that, that could show me what service was like. Uh, and, and the guy that I picked, he was that guy that I had lunch with eight years earlier. Um, and part of the reason was is because I absolutely loved the freedom that he had. The happiness and the joy that I saw in his life, I wanted that. Uh, and what he told me was a lot of that came from having the heart of a servant. And was I willing to do some of those things? I was never required or asked. Yeah, I was asked, but I was never required to do anything. Uh, what he would do is he gave me those opportunities. And then it was my choice as to whether or not I wanted to follow through with those opportunities. And it was amazing because each one of those opportunities took me more out of myself and allowed me to think about other people. 
And the more opportunities I got and the more things I did, it seemed like the less selfish that I was. And the less selfish I was, the more I seemed to enjoy life. And the more happiness it brought me. And the more joy. Alcoholics Anonymous these last five and a half years have given me a purpose. And it's given me a life. It's given me a life more, worth more than I ever would have thought. I came into these rooms thinking that you guys were going to show me not how to drink. You know, that I, that's, that was my only problem. Alcoholics Anonymous showed me how to appreciate a life, how to enjoy a life, and how to have a meaningful life. And for that, I am so very, very grateful. Um, part of what this has also taught me is, is how to be a valued employee. Alcoholics Anonymous has, has showed me how to be a valuable employee again. I now have a career again. It's been reestablished. It showed me how to be the father I always wanted to be. And, and not so much a father that my daughter can be proud of, but the dad that she deserves because she really is a great kid. Uh, it allowed me to be the son that my parents deserved. To the point where my dad had a, a very, I was less than 75 days sober. Uh, he had uh, an accident. Uh, two steps, walking up two steps, slipped and fell. Um, because he was a heart patient, uh, he had a massive brain bleed. And uh, by the time they, they were able to, to determine what it looked like, he was given less than a 10% chance to live. The power of the program, Alcoholics Anonymous, helped save my dad for two years that night because my mother was a complete mess and she was a wreck. And 55 years in her marriage, there was no way that she was going to be able to make a decision on an emergency surgery for my dad. I was able to stay calm in the moment and make that decision for my family. And it was because of Alcoholics Anonymous and it was because of God wasn't because of anything I did. But you guys taught me how to be calm. You taught me how to think. You taught me how to care. Uh, and I was able to use those assets uh, to, to make that decision and to allow my dad a fighting chance. And, uh, and he did. He survived, and he lived uh, for two years and ten days after that. Uh, and and that, what that looked like was it, was it gave me a chance to be the son he deserved. Uh, because he could no longer do for himself. So uh, after work, I would come and I would help my mother take care of him. I would put him to bed at night after meetings. Uh, and and I, still, I still participated in my home group. Uh, I still did the things that I needed to do to maintain my freedom. Um, Life also showed me that with three DUIs, um, that, that jail time that I thought I was going to get out of, I didn't. Uh, I, I was sentenced to 120 days. Um, they allowed me to do weekends because of my dad's condition, uh, and that turned out over COVID. It took me three years to do 46 weekends because uh, they, they took 28 days off for, for the amount of time I had been in treatment. Uh, but one of the things that my sponsor helped me with with that was that when I would complain and, and, and say, man, you know, this just doesn't seem fair. I worked hard all week. You know, my dad's condition and everything like that, and my mom's having to drive me to a different county so that I can go to jail for 48 hours. 
I remember him saying one time, you know, that 48 hours would probably go a lot faster if instead of thinking about how you didn't deserve to be there, if you go in with the heart of a servant and see if maybe there's somebody you can help. And uh, what a game changer. Because I was able to go in with the armory that, that Alcoholics Anonymous gives you. Uh, I was able to go in there and I was, I was at peace the entire time I was there. And I actually was able to help some people along the way. Um, and today, like I say, you guys, I thought all you were going to do was show me how not to drink. And uh, what you've shown me is this wonderful life, the freedom that I have today, because I'm not chasing it. I'm not chasing that drink. I don't have to. I have a viable solution for all the problems that happen in my life, and that's through God and through Alcoholics Anonymous. I try and practice these principles every day of my life. And in doing so, it has given me a wonderful life that I don't deserve, but I'll sure fight anybody and everybody in this room to keep. And uh, I'm, I'm going to close with this. Um, I would love to think that something I said tonight impacted someone, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be that ego-driven. Uh, but if you're sick and suffering tonight, and if you feel like life has knocked you down, um, look up. Get up. Don't ever give up. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is that helping hand if you want it. And it will always be there. And God could and would if he were sought. God bless you and thank you so much.